0: So we're going to read a lot of stuff tonight. Uh, I've tried to prepare uh, y'all for this for the last two weeks. So if you feel at any point in time like things are bouncing off the wall, I'd be happy to meet with you and talk about it. (laughs) Um, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. We're just going to read all of chapter 7. It's one kind of piece, vision, and interpretation. And so I'm just going to read all of it. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel saw a dream, and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise and devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and it was given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a seasoned and a time i saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed as for me daniel my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made it known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out upon the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on his head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions and as I looked this horn made war on the Saints and it prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the Saints of the Most High and at that time came when the Saints possessed the kingdom thus he said as for the fourth beast There shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And he shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And his, and, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So as we study this, let me just open us in a quick word of prayer. Uh, Lord, the things we read in this text are indeed difficult, and they are indeed, uh, in many places, uh, confounding and and strange to our ears and to our eyes. Uh, Would you just give us uh, your help tonight by your spirit to illumine the text for us, uh, make it alive, and and help us to see all of the, the wisdom and the practicality which is here and all of the glory which you have displayed of yourself in these words. Amen. Hey, as we are, uh, let's say, in the whole theme of the book of Daniel, uh, the, the main idea that we've been working with is a field guide for exile. So Daniel has written two exiles for the purpose of essentially encouraging them to stay in the fight and to give them a proper worldview in the context of their exile. Uh, last week uh, and the week before, we took kind of two Uh, jumps out of our study through Daniel and we just really looked at prophecy and its purpose and uh, Two of the things we kind of took away from that one is that the purpose of prophecy is not To debate about future coming events. The purpose of prophecy is primarily to encourage the Saints and Secondly, we saw through the fulfillment of prophecy We looked at Isaiah's prophecy last week that a promise given by God is a guarantee is guaranteed to come to pass So a promise given by God is something that he gives and his word is fixed, it will not break. Uh, And this week we're gonna see the prophecy and the vision and I've titled this study The Cloud Rider Uh, and that comes straight out of what I think is the center hub, the motif by which everything else in the text should be governed. And that is uh, in verse 13, uh, you see, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. I think that text is the thing that governs the rest of this text. And that is going to uh, put me into certain uh, awkward positions with certain parts of the text. Uh, but if you, if you studied this text and if you're interested in studying more various theories on how do we exegete this text and apply it and all that, be more than happy to sit down and talk through all the different theories. There's uh, probably, I think, at least four different ways of approaching the book of Daniel from when we get to chapter 7 through chapter 12. Um, I'm adopting one of those views, and you can follow along with me and maybe see if you can guess which one that is. Um, So the cloud rider, that's the the main focus and I think Sinclair Ferguson says it well when he's talking about the the thrust of this text. Um, He says this, he says, for all their power and all their majesty and their brutality, these beasts would simply form the background against which the glorious kingdom of God would be inaugurated. So for all of the descriptive uh, majesty, glory, strangeness, uh, dominion that the beasts have, in this text, they're just the backdrop. They're just the footnote to the coming of the Son of Man. Now, that's an important thing because I think when we, if you were to look at this text and you were to read commentary on it or you were to debate this text with someone else, uh, you would get very heavily bogged down into verses 1 through 8. You'd skip entirely verses 9 through 14, and you get really bogged down again in verses 15 through 25. So you'd, uh, you'd essentially jump over the thing everyone agrees on And you'd be stuck debating the minutia of the text. So Sinclair Ferguson kind of keeps the main thing, the main thing. The kingdom of God being inaugurated is the main thing in the text. Okay. So with that being said, that's my main driving idea. Uh, We are going to dabble into these various kingdoms and what we agree upon, at least in terms of scholarship. So if you look at verse one, uh, you'll notice that he's putting a specific time and date on when this is happening. Uh, He says, he makes this claim, it's in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, that these things are happening, okay? Now, you'll notice this vision in chapter 7 is almost identical with different language, but almost identical to the vision in chapter 2. It's likely that Daniel is exegeting the same events, kind of seeing them from two different depictions. Same thing, there's a, a statue, and it's got four different parts, and each of those parts actually matches up with each of the different beasts here. But what's interesting about that is, if if Daniel is writing truthfully, which I think he is, Daniel has called this uh, these happenings before Nebuchadnezzar left power, which means he he calls the shot that the Medo-Persian Empire is going to take over after Babylon, decades before it happens, while Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his power. And not only that, but if we if we take it even just here from uh, from this date, from when Belshazzar is king of Babylon, Babylon's still in control. Babylon is the first of the beasts. And he predicts events that happen hundreds of years downstream of him writing it. Now, if you were to go to a a secular university and you were to ask the Old Testament department of that university, when was the book of Daniel written? They would say somewhere in the second century BC. And the reason they would say that is because the book of Daniel so accurately details things that happen between the sixth and the second century that they say it has to have been written after the events because it's written like someone who's telling the history of something, not like someone who's foretelling the events that are happening. The problem with that is there's nothing in the actual textual tradition of Daniel that gives a second century reading any credibility. The book of Daniel was accepted by the Jews into the canon uh, around the time of 550 BC, uh, That's probably as late as 450 BC. So if they would have already accepted it into the canon by the time that it's... Uh, it like, let's say right after it's been written, um, that would be preposterous for the Jewish scriptures. So the Jews took Daniel to be a book that was authentically written. And the only reason that people would deny the book of Daniel's authenticity from that uh, sixth century writing is primarily because of the historical problems you bump into. If you don't believe in prophecy, you, you cannot accept a sixth century date for the book of Daniel. If you do believe in prophecy, then the sixth century date of Daniel is actually one of the best, let's say, proofs that there is something as the supernatural. If Christians are right about the book of Daniel, that it was written when Daniel makes a claim that it was written, then all the other naturalists in the world are wrong when it comes to their assumptions and worldview. But if the Christians are wrong about Daniel, then uh, there's a lot of other things in scripture that we're wrong about as well. But I think this is one of the best proofs that the predictions of Daniel become so accurate that people essentially doubt their authorship. So with that being said, he's he's writing it in the time of the first year of Belshazzar, and in this vision, he he talks about the origin point of these beasts. And you'll notice the origin is God himself. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in a dream and I told the sum of the matter, or sorry, I saw in a dream and my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That's one way of saying that God's spirit is stirring up the great sea into chaos. The great sea is rebellion, chaos, human uh, human rebellion against God, and so God is the one initiating this rebellion. And the four great beasts come out of the sea, and they're all different from one another. And you'll notice sequentially as you go through those verses, God is the one telling the beasts where to go and what to do. To the first beast, he he gives it all of these all of these attributes like a lion and like eagle's wings, but he's the one who tears its wings off and gives it the heart and mind of a man. Uh, the second beast is commanded by God to arise and devour much flesh. That's at the end of verse five. And that, where's that command coming from? It's coming from God. God's the one telling the beast what to do. They're at his beck and call. The uh, third beast uh, is, uh, is, told, uh, is told what to do as well. Uh, this one is given, uh, it's it described like a leopard with four wings and a burn on its back. And the beast had four heads. And you'll notice at the end of verse six, and dominion was given to it. Well, given by who? If we accept the biblical worldview of history, we're accepting a view of God's sovereignty and his interaction with things that essentially doesn't just impact the scriptures, it impacts how you read your history textbooks. So uh, the claim being made here is that when you read about Alexander the Great and his conquests in uh, in, the, in the Middle Eastern region through Egypt and all of that amazing rise to power, uh, Alexander the Great is merely doing what God has him to do. God has given Alexander the Great all these victories and dominions. Um, According to Daniel, this is Sinclair Ferguson again, he says, not even Alexander the Great achieved his ambition on his own strength. Rather, dominion was given to him by God. This is a worldview idea. I point that out because the very first thing we saw in the book of Daniel chapter 1 was a worldview claim. God's the one who gives Judah over to the Babylonians. God's the one in control of this whole situation. So by the way, Daniel chapter 7, nothing's changed. God's still in control of all of it. He's actually kind of orchestrating it all behind the scenes. So then who are these four kingdoms that God is commanding around? The first one, Babylon. It's the head of gold from chapter 2. Babylon is, even in their own artwork, described as a a lion with wings. Uh, If you go to the Babylonian archives and you look at how, how they talk about themselves and their own symbols of power, it's a lion with wings. So Daniel is to his contemporary readers, he might as well have said, and Babylon is the first kingdom, okay? This is their sim- symbolism, just like an elephant is the Republican Party and the, uh, uh, what is it? a donkey is the Democratic Party. It, these symbols mean something to us and to our context, just like this would have meant to them, okay? Then he's going to start calling future shots. The second kingdom is the Medo-Persian Empire. He's already predicted uh, in the book of Daniel. We've already seen how he says to Belshazzar his kingdom is going to be stripped from him. Well, here is in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel writing and telling of that stripping. He says, after uh, after the Babylonian Empire, there's going to come another empire, and it's going to have three ribs in its mouth. It's going to be kind of lopsided. Um, This is the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, It's lopsided in its power. The Medes and the Persians are unified, but the Persians are dominant in that empire. So it's a lopsided beast. And so this is the second empire that succeeds the Babylonians. There's a third beast, which is given, uh, which is like a leopard, it has four wings, um, and, it's, and it's swift, and it goes out and it, and it takes control of the world after this second empire, and that's the, uh, well, it's the Hellenistic Empire, it's Alexander the Great conquering with his empire, it's the one that comes right after the Medes and the Persians. So, uh, all those three are holistically agreed upon by, uh, uh, by Old Testament scholars, and then the debate comes in the fourth empire. And that's because the fourth empire is described differently than the others. So the fourth one, he says, I saw in a night vision, and behold, four, a fourth beast, this is verse 7, it was terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and it stamped what was left with its feet. Notice this, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So in what way is this empire different? Well, firstly, it's not given any natural beastly description. So it's described like a beast, but it has iron teeth, it's it's, it's Let's say it's more savage than the other empires that are being described. This is, it's so its so strange that Daniel says, essentially, it's not even like the other ones. Well, how is it not like the other ones? Well, if, you, if you're if you following with the sequential timing of all these things, the fourth empire to take over after Alexander the Great is the Roman Empire. They're the one who take over right after Alexander the Great. You'll notice something else about this text. As soon as the fourth empire is introduced, you know, it's told about the horns and, and whatnot, um, then Daniel looks, verse 9, sees the Ancient of Days taking his seat of authority. Uh, then this fourth beast is slain, verse uh, 11 and 12. And then verse 13 and 14, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. So if you're trying to follow the chronology of these events, the fourth kingdom is introduced. God essentially sits on his throne. The fourth kingdom is slain. And, at, and while the fourth kingdom is slain is when the Son of Man is ascending on high. So then the question of timing becomes, well, when did the Son of Man ascend on high? Uh, I'll, when we get to Daniel chapter 9, uh, we're going to take a jump out to Matthew 24 and Jesus's own claims about these events. Um, but Jesus receives his kingdom, his dominion, his authority, this is Matthew 26, when he ascends on high to heaven. So he's crucified, and he tells Caiaphas, Matthew 26, when you will see the Son of Man in his kingdom, in his glory. So if Jesus is saying that, he's, he's referring here to the son of man receiving his kingdom. That's happening in the Roman Empire in the first century AD. So the timing of these things is then, let's say, roughly defined, right? The fourth kingdom is introduced after Alexander the Great, and its end comes, and somewhere in that end time is when Jesus gets his kingdom. And so, and so there is the timing of these things, that these events were uh, surmised and, and happening in the first century AD. It came true. We can point to them and we can look at them. So then the question is, okay, all these things are, are laid out for us. What might be problematic about that? Well, there's this interesting detail about the fourth kingdom, which is its horns. It's got 10 horns and there's one horn. It's not like the other horns. It's, uh, um, it's got anthropomorphisms given to it. It's got eyes. It speaks. Um, and, it, and it even takes it upon itself to change laws. And if you look at the end of the chapter when, he, when, the, uh, when it's interpreted for him, when, when Daniel gets the interpretation, uh, you'll notice, a verse, this is verse 24 of the chapter, it says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings, he shall speak words against the Most High, he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. So the fourth kingdom, this this horn, wars against God's saints, is destroyed by God at the time when the saints are given the kingdom for themselves. So this is, a, this is an interesting, let's say, chronology of events. I'm going to punt, let's say, all the specific necessities of this till we get to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, but uh, surmise it to say, I think all these events happened or were summarized in the first century AD. This is when this all took place. Uh, under Rome, the persecution of the Christians, the destruction of Jerusalem, and Jesus' ascension and crucifixion. I think all those things are the cataclysmic events that are being talked about here when Jesus receives his kingdom and he's seated, seated on his throne. That's what we see in Acts uh, chapter 7. Okay, so that's for the, let's say, technical pieces. Now for the uh, main idea pieces of this text, okay? If you're a, a Jew and you are under Babylonian captivity, we've talked about this before, why would it be important for you to know that God's still in control at this point in time? Well, you'll notice the timing of these, this vision is the first year of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar, as we saw in the text earlier in Daniel, is a terrible king it's likely that Daniel in his wisdom having seen Nebuchadnezzar sees these patterns in Belshazzar and other people are aware of his his terribleness and now the Jews need encouragement okay it's a tumultuous time in the empire we know that God already told us he's in control it would it would be nice to have a reminder about God's sovereign authority right now well here comes the vision same vision same reminder same truth but given at a let's say a timely moment hey by the way God's still in charge, even though this schmuck is in charge of the empire. So this is, this is let's say, the, the encouragement that's given. And, and, but notice something else that's interesting in the text. It's a little bit of a, a apologetic against the, well, the other empires. Notice how God rules from his kingdom as opposed to how the other empires rule. So the other empires, uh, this is uh, from early in the text, well, they have to go about the world themselves Making war against things. So the first, the first one has to go around uh, on the ground uh, and has to subdue the earth. The second beast has to go around and devour much flesh itself. The the third beast has to go about itself on the earth and it's given dominion. All of them are thwarted, but all of them have to self reign over the thing that's given to them. But notice the ancient of days. What does he do? Verse nine, his throne is placed. The ancient of days takes his seat. His clothing is white as snow. His hair is pure like wool. His throne is a fiery flame. Notice verse 10, a thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Well, how does, how does Yahweh reign? Well, he doesn't, he actually has people do his bidding for him. He's got angels. He's got armies. He's in control of the whole thing so much so that he doesn't even have to get up off his throne to make sure that things happen the way he wants them to happen. It's a, it's a display of power, if you like. The other kingdoms have to work for all the dominion that they get, and Yahweh is simply sitting on his throne, and he can call his angels around, and they can do his bidding whenever he wants. It's a, it's a let's say, a treatise against these other kingdoms. Yahweh's far more powerful than all of them. And here's the other thing is, that's drawn out by the text. Um, the son of man figure here is interesting, and you'll notice the text emphasizes the the term, it's like a son of man. This This person who inherits the kingdom from the ancient of days is like a son of man. And that ought to be contrasted in our minds with the other kingdoms, which are like a lion or like a bear or like a leopard or like nothing else we can describe. Well, what's this king like? Well, he's like a son of man. He, he's human. He reigns as a human bearing the image of God in all of the capacity that a human should have when bearing God's image and ruling on his throne as opposed to the other kingdoms which reign in a, in a beastly fashion, in a way that's unhuman in their viciousness, their brutality, their, their, uh, their savageness. We, we look at these images of beasts and their descriptions, and we think those are strong, powerful images. And from an earthly standpoint, that, that is kind of true. But in a real sense, it's, it's, a, it's a shortcoming kind of reign. It's a vicious reign, a cruel reign, but it's not a human reign. It's not a God-ordained reign like the one who is the son of man. He, he reigns, well, like Adam was supposed to reign. He reigns over creation. He reigns and he gets his authority directly from the ancient of days. And what happens in his dominion? Well, uh, he doesn't devour things. He doesn't destroy things. What happens in his dominion? He's given glory and a kingdom. All people, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It won't pass away. Uh, in, in other texts, we're talk, we talk about the same uh, character in the Old Testament. His, his dominion is a peaceful one. Uh, where the lion lies next to the lamb and, and people uh, don't experience pain anymore. It's an interesting contrast in the, in the hope of exiles in Babylon. They know nothing but oppression and violence and destruction, even in, in their own reigns, so they know this. Uh, but God's kingdom that they're looking forward to is one that is, well, it's, it's different than the empires they're used to. So with all that being said uh, in this text of Daniel, uh, a, there's one through-line thing that uh, a saint can know, an exile can know about this text. Which is that, well, what God said in Daniel chapter 2 is still true in Daniel chapter 7. Namely, that all these other kingdoms, well, they're still going to have their way for time, times, and half a time. However, ultimately, at the end of days, the Ancient of Days only gives his authority to one other. And this one other is, well, he's one whose rule you'd want to be under. It's, it's an attractive rule. It's one that is, well, it's restful. It's, it's all the things that you would want out of a good leader. Imagine uh, trying to have your best advantage in the day of the Babylonian Empire. Well, you might be backstabbed if you're high up enough and, and someone else wants your seat of authority. You might be uh, cruelly thrown in prison if you look at someone the wrong way, right? Think about Nebuchadnezzar as king. If you serve Nebuchadnezzar and you don't do what he wants when you want him to do it, well, like he says to his wise men, I'll just tear you limb from limb in the streets. You don't want that kind of a king. Well, uh, the Son of Man is, is different. His kingdom is one you can expect in a different kind of way. His kingdom is one that is, well, it's, it's, it's one that everyone would want to live under because it's an attractive kind of kingdom. That's an interesting thing. At the end of it, uh, Daniel shows, shows a remarkable concern for the saints that are way downstream of him, essentially uh, well, there's this, there's this horn that's going to war against the saints, and I'm, I'm concerned for these saints in the future. Tell me more about this. So the, that's why the prophecy expounded further. But you have this interesting note. Essentially, the, the affirmation that, yes, this, this person will war against the saints and have much victory against them. But ultimately, verse 26 of Daniel chapter 7, the court will sit as judgment. His dominion will be taken away and he will be consumed and destroyed to the end. Because, why? The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, who are they given to? They're given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Translation, well, when we talk in the New Testament about we are sons and daughters of God who are to be co-heirs with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, what are we talking about? Well, his victory and his kingdom is... In a real sense, our victory in our kingdom is one that we rule and reign in with him. This is an interesting kind of thing. The the victory of the head of the kingdom is also the victory of the members of that kingdom to rule and to reign. This is something that Daniel, this isn't even the New Testament yet, right? Daniel is the one saying this. It's a very interesting thing. So uh, if you are, let's say, with the king of this final kingdom, well, there's there's more to hope for than just, well, a general peace in your time. There's also special privileges. There's special responsibilities their special duties that are involved with that and that's why you know paul will exhort saints in the new testament to live different from the world why because you will judge over the world you will be ruling and reigning to subdue the world so you have to live differently you can't live like the world you have to be different because you're called to be more than what you currently are this is kind of the hope of the christian life of sanctification glory dominion Uh, this is all christians being given the promise to fulfill the mandate that Adam was supposed to fulfill in the garden. To subdue the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and to go forth and to, you know, tame all the, all the creation. Well, Adam doesn't. Jesus does. And Jesus does this by means of, well, his, himself, his angels, and by means of his church. Think about the commission that Jesus gives in the New Testament. Go therefore and make disciples. It's a narrowing and a specification and a reiteration of the be fruitful and multiply command. Go forth and make disciples of all nations, right? Same kind of idea. How do you subdue a crazy world that's chaotic and rebellious against God? Well, you give them the gospel. You let the Spirit do his work in their hearts. And you disciple them into obedience to God so that, well, so that his kingdom will go forward. So his kingdom will grow. So it will advance. And so ultimately it will rule and reign for an everlasting time. With that being said, uh, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we can go into some discussion. Father, I thank you for uh, this text, uh, even the hard parts, uh, even the parts that are obscure and, and uh, abstract to us. I pray that you would give us uh, humble hearts and humble spirits as we uh, look at it, as we seek to apply it now, and would you bless our time of discussion and, and all of the, um, the thoughts and uh, ponderings of our heart. pray this in uh, your holy name.